0: I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio, so stay tuned. All right, best agility training practices, round three. Here we go. This one is all about separating and therefore bridging the gap between the trial ring and the training ring, essentially. So I want you to think of this as being that anytime you do agility, you are either training or testing. A trial is always a test. There's no training in a trial. Even if you are allowed to repeat things, you know, even if you're allowed to fix whatever went wrong and then go on, you're still not training. That's still a test. So think of it as happening in two different conditions, the test condition and the training condition. In the training condition or the skills type of condition, you're going to want a high rate of reinforcement. You're going to want short skill-based work for the dog and for you, and your goal is always going to be to zero in on a key component or multiple key components. So let me give you a hint that does not look like showing up to class and running a 20 obstacle course. If that's how your weekly group classes run, your weekly group class is also a test condition or kind of should be treated as such, but I'll get back to that in a minute. So in the training condition, to kind of recap, high rate of reinforcement, somebody is learning something. You're zeroing in on a skill. So that could be your front cross timing and handling, or it could be the dog's understanding of a weave pull entry. Okay, so you are zeroing in on a skill, and there should be a high rate of reinforcement. You shouldn't be testing multiple things at once, or I'm sorry, training multiple things at once in your uh, training condition. So in the training condition, you really should be looking at one thing. So that means that if you're looking at, say, your soft side weave pole entry, and you decide to do some crazy serpentine into the soft side entry, and the dog fails the serpentine part, but that wasn't what you wanted to look at, That's not effective, that's not an effective way to go. That's not a fair way to go for either of you. Okay, so if I'm looking at the soft side weave entry and my dog maybe has a jumping issue and may pull bars, I'm not going to have jumping involved. I'm not going to have that soft side weave entry be right after a dog walk if the dog walk contact is also something that I need to be zeroing in on. So I'm very much splitting out the components in the training uh, condition. Now, does that mean that I'm always only doing one thing? No, I could be running a sequence in my training condition. But now I'm looking at myself as a handler and I'm still zeroing in on something. And if my dog is repeatedly failing a skill in this sequence, I have to pivot to actually working on that. So for instance, um, if my dog is flying off the end of the teeter in a sequence that I'm trying to work, so my goal is actually to work on my front cross timing in the sequence, but my dog keeps flying off the end of the teeter, I have two choices. I can stop, pivot, work on the teeter or I can remove the teeter from the sequence. But continuing to try to train the teeter and get my front cross timing right in the same session is not smart, is not helpful for either myself or my dog. And yet I think that that's kind of what we constantly do. We run until things go wrong, and then we fix the thing that went wrong rather than being smart about, here's what I expect us to be zeroing in on today. In your test condition... This is a full course that you intend to be successful at. So this is a full course that you think you and your dog can, can nail. It shouldn't be a full course that you know will have problems in it. If you know that there's going to be a problem, you shouldn't be testing. You should be pulling out that problem, going back to the training um, phase. Can you do that in a trial? No, you can't go, you know, I'm just going to work jumps five through 10. Thanks for your time, everybody. That's not, that's not how this works, right? So if you look at a course that you know you can't do, I would recommend, and you're in a trial, I would recommend that you skip that part, reroute around that part, just make it up. If it looks smooth, nobody's going to care. I mean, when people care is when you hang up the trial, Okay, but if you cut out an entire section of a course, the judge is just going to be confused, raise their hands, and you're going to move on, um, and that's perfectly fine. So, in the test condition, you should your goal should be to get out there and do the thing. And in the trial, that's pretty much what you're going to do because you don't have a lot of other options. But look, let's look at when you're truly in training; you have options. But it still looks like the test condition. So that's you show up and there's a course to run. I would recommend that you make it look like the test that you do need to pass on the weekend. Walk the course. Don't discuss it at length. Warm up the dog. Enter the ring on lead. Don't have any reinforcers on you. Have them outside of the ring. And run through with one shot. Do not stop and fix a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. Just, you know... Try it, see what you find out. The point of the test is to see what you can actually do, not to teach you or your dog how to do it. You don't learn from the test. So if you are in a training class that runs a course, you should look at it like that, that you're practicing the skill of getting it all right the first time, not the skill of getting it perfect, and certainly not the skill of kind of breaking out these key components. Um, this applies in obedience too and that's kind of my other sport so I'm going to talk about it for just a second here because I think a lot of the time in obedience we do the exact same thing we set up a sequence of things that we're going to do so maybe we're going to do our um, moving stand from utility and we have an issue with healing and healing is part of the moving stand then can we actually work on the moving stand including the healing or will we wind up just working on healing right? So we should actually break those components out, work on the components of the moving stand. Maybe it's the exam and the stand stay piece that we want to work on and then work on healing as a separate entity. Rather than trying to constantly be fixing things that are going wrong, we want to be setting up a reinforcement loop. We want to be setting up dog does thing Uh, Dog gets paid, dog does thing again, dog gets paid, right? So it should be this kind of loop of reinforcement rather than dog does thing, human doesn't like it, human fixes the thing, human makes the dog try again, human finally reinforces the dog after three attempts. This is not what training should look like. So in agility, what tends to happen is you get there, you walk your course, you start running, something goes wrong. And your choice here is to continue to treat it like the test condition and just complete the course and then go, okay, what went wrong in that one area? Or stop and fix that area right then and there. I think that when we stop and fix the area right then and there, we teach the dog to kind of expect that to happen. And I don't want them to expect it. I want them to think we know what we're doing and they should definitely trust us and listen to us. And so if they go off course, for instance, trust that you sent them there, finish the run and then reinforce. And then you can turn to your instructor and say, okay, how can I handle that difference? So the dog actually stays on course rather than telling the dog that you made a mistake. How do we then kind of bridge the gap? So how does the dog know we're doing skill-based work versus the test condition? Well, they know due to the antecedents at play, which is why I don't think we should muddy these waters. It's why we should walk in, take the leash off as if we are at a trial, and treat the course as if it is a course at a trial that we are trying to get right the first time through. And not, you know, stop, feed the dog, feed the dog multiple times. I work with a lot of dogs who actually shut down in trials because they're expecting food every three or four obstacles in training, because that's about how often their handler messes up and stops and feeds them. Um, And so then they shut down in the trial because they're like, man, 20 obstacles is a lot to string together without food. Right? So you're going to actually reveal what your true issues are by doing this. And you'll be more successful because you'll be able to isolate those issues with your trainer and figure them out. Versus I want my dog to be very clear. There's a lot of reinforcement here at play. You're gonna hang in here with me. We're gonna do this short three or four obstacle thing. I'm gonna pay you for each effort that you make while I figure myself out, or I'm gonna make sure that you're getting it right so that I'm therefore paying you every effort that you make. Um, It looks really different to them. They know the difference anyway, so we may as well feed into them knowing that difference, and treating the trial like a true test, and then taking those things back to training. So how does fix and go, or any variation on that theme play in here? For me, it's very dog dependent, whether you get to fix and go or not. If fix and go is going to cause stress to your learner, because that's not how you train, Then it's not a good idea. You should run on, take the error back to training, fix it in training. If fix and go is going to drive home the point because you have showed it to the dog in the training condition, then sure, you can give it a shot. I worry about what fix and go will do to everybody's contacts. Now that they're allowed to treat them like weave poles and try them again. And this is the U S that I'm talking about. We have a recent, there's some recent rule changes that we're allowed to retry some stuff, um, which has been allowed in most other countries for a long time. And I, you know, I worry a little bit about what this is going to do to some of those performances, like those contact performances. If people are like, well, I'm just going to retry and show it, show it to them. That isn't training, right? So let's not kid ourselves that, going, oh, I'm not going to let you continue because you didn't do that right. Let's try it again. That is fine and a good response to have. But it is not the teaching that needs to be done. The teaching is done in the training phase with that high rate of reinforcement. So I hope that recognizing whether or not you are in a test or a training condition at any given time while training your dog agility or obedience or anything helps to drive home just just some better practices overall. And remember that when you're in that training phase, you want to be following the previous best practices that we talked about. You're getting speed in ways that work for you. You are using clean reinforcement principles and you are applying those things in ways that then help you in the test phase. And you're constantly looking at whether or not it helps you in the test phase, because that's where you find out what you need to change. All right, I've got some Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Jan. Jan writes, we're starting to have a problem that has the potential to develop into something bad. Luna has started displaying possessiveness of her canine friends, humans. She has always been possessive of me. If I'm loving on another dog, she runs over to get attention from me or will even put herself between me and the other dog. However, now, if she's getting loved on by someone else, she's starting to do a little growl, evil eye, teeth bearing when their dog approaches. When this happens, do I ask the other person to stop interacting with her? Try to call her to me? Currently, the behavior is reinforcing as she continues to get loved on and the other dog backs off. Luna's behavior is very slowly increasing in intensity and I don't want to see it escalate. I've asked her to stop, but that hasn't helped. Uh, Jan, good question. First of all, you kind of need a behavior modification plan if you want this dog to be around dogs and people and be getting access to affection from the people. So... In lieu of that, because I can't give you that here, what I'm going to tell you is that you need to think about affection from people the way that you would think about other resources, because your dog thinks of it that way, I'm assuming. What that means is if you wouldn't give Luna a raw bone in a room with other dogs, and maybe you would, but hear me out, then you shouldn't also be giving Luna affection in that room with other dogs if that's not something she can handle if everybody needs to ignore all other dogs while luna's in the room then that's what everybody has to do and management may be the kindest option here to just make sure that she isn't expected to share in the same sense that you wouldn't expect her to share something like a juicy raw bone with another dog so That is the way that I want you to think of it. And if you do think of it that way, you may actually be able to take a more productive approach. Next one comes from Kim. Kim writes, I have a 20 month old male border collie. He's been to three trials. And while at these trials, he's doing really well. And we're having so much fun. And I'm just assuming agility trials here. Um, But at moments, he seems stressed. He will seem fearful of strange things for a moment, but seems to be easily moved on to focus on to something else. He's not aggressive with people or other dogs. Wants to play and skitter with dogs at the trial. Problem, when he gets home, he is growly and stiff with the other dogs. Last time, growled at my husband for holding his head and petting him like he normally does, and this time tonight, he was standing over my other dog and bristled at me when I told him to stand down. He's not normally ever mean or aggressive. He likes to herd the other dogs, but never truly mean to them. I live across from a wooded area where he gets off-leash hikes every day as long as it's not raining. And we do live on a small farm where he has free range when we're out. He's never acted this way until we started trialing, or at least I've never seen it. Uh, And Kim would like to add, both times by the next day he's back to his old self. So... The first thing that probably needs to get ruled out is pain. He could be painful from the trial because it's a lot of work. But if you're not seeing similar behaviors after training, like after agility training, where he's going to do the same amount of agility, then I'm going to lean towards this next part of my answer, which is that these trials are very hard on him mentally. They're a lot harder on him than you're picking up. Okay, 21-month-old Border Collies, especially boy Border Collies, are so far from being, in my opinion, mentally capable of handling that kind of thing. Um, and your dog, you know, I can generally say that that's too young. Your dog is saying for sure that he's not ready. Um, he's been to three agility trials. While he's there, you're saying he's doing great. But at moments he seems stressed, those moments are having a much bigger effect on him than you're aware of in the moment. He shouldn't seem stressed at all. He should seem pretty much having a great time. If something is causing him fear, um, you know, like you mentioned, he seems fearful of strange things for a moment, but he seems to be easily moved on. That mean that sounds to me that you are distracting him away from those things and moving him on and kind of not allowing him to process. So Again, this isn't the place for me to give you a full-blown behavior modification plan. My cheap and easy answer for the podcast is you need to give him some more time. He's not ready to be out there yet. Give him some more time. I would give him at least till he's two. Um, Two and a half is probably even better. And when you do go back in, ease into it. Enter one day of the trial. See how he does at home. His home behavior is going to tell you if he can handle those trials or not. And if even one day in a few months is too much for him, you wanna get some help, you wanna get some major help because um, this is the kind of thing that does not get better. Okay, as the dog learns to be a little bit more stressed and more stressed, they don't habituate if they're feeling that stressed. Instead, they sensitize and that's definitely not what you want. Thanks for your question, Kim. Last one today comes from Brittany. I would be very interested in hearing more about how to teach a stop. Do you, and Brittany I think is referencing, um, when I was talking about training the dogs to stop in motion out on decompression walks. So back to Brittany's question, do you use a platform? I know you've talked about the intersection in the last mini episodes. So again, talking about decompression walks, I teach my dogs to stop at intersections. Um, when we're hiking could you get into more detail do did you start i don't know what the that part of the question is it says did you start unleashed i don't uh, i think you mean leash did you start on leash would you would also be interested in hearing your thoughts on teaching an over cue so kind of pulling over so essentially Brittany, you're asking me for my um course on decompression walk skills which is if there were you know about twice as many hours in a day would already be up, but um, understand that I teach almost all of these things just by feeding the dogs. Okay, so the stop, I will just say something, the dog looks at me, I throw food at them. So stop is just trained by the dog expecting me to throw food at them wherever they are. So what happens is I say their name, stop, they turn, they, because they heard their name, I say, stop, I throw that food. Um, they start to predict that I'm going to throw food at them. When I say that word, stop. And by that process, they start to pause because they're waiting for me to throw the food. And now it's an operant behavior. Now I can actually, um, work on it, work on some duration with it, et cetera. I don't use a platform. Um, as far as the intersection, I just teach them that we eat cookies at intersections. So in the same sense that your dog knows when to expect a treat in your house, they expect a treat at intersections and so they stop at intersections and wait for me. Uh, I don't tend to start on leash. As far as teaching them to get over when there's uh, bikes or runners, same deal. I say over and then I say scatter and I just throw food everywhere and they all pull over and um, scatter the food out of the grass. So it's really all just saying, just giving them words that mean, and now I'm going to feed you here. And they learn it so quickly, especially if they're seeing other dogs do it as well. So thanks for your question. thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash CogDog Radio and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers.